0: So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Linda, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here and and to be with your extended audience around the world.
0: Fantastic. So where are you? You've got a very interesting background going for you.
1: Uh, I am in Portola Valley, California. So I'm about seven miles from Stanford University, about 30 miles south of San Francisco. It's a beautiful background. Uh, We're having a very nice fall, so it's awesome.
0: (laughs) Very, very good. So as a starting point, given the fact that you've got a very interesting background, let's start with just a summary of sort of a rundown of who is Linda and how you arrived where you are today.
1: Perfect. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, So I always start, and this, this is relevant to the background, with the fact that I am a native Californian. And that is only relevant because I grew up in Silicon Valley with all the people who founded the venture capital industry. They were all friends of my family. So I've been deeply rooted and connected in Silicon Valley basically my entire existence. But most of my professional career has been in the boardrooms and C-suites of the Global 500. So I did investment banking, corporate yes. finance and M&A coming out of college, back to graduate school at Stanford, and then on into kind of traditional strategy consulting within a most amazing place called the Mac Group. Uh, yeah. We were led by our fearless leader, Fred Sturtevant. If the Mac Group still existed, it, it was bought by Capgemini and became Gemini Consulting. We'd probably all still be there, uh, but it was an amazing place. I ended up running the San Francisco office and co-leading the high-tech and telecommunications practice before they asked me to move to Amsterdam to run the high-tech practice there. So although I'm a local, I've lived, worked, or traveled in about 77 countries now. So very global in my perspective. I've been very, very blessed. So I moved to Amsterdam to run that high-tech practice uh, in Europe, but a very interesting thing was occurring at that time. So the Mac group had a whole bunch of faculty partners uh, made up of professors from business schools around the world. Two of those faculty partners were Gary Hamel from Linden, yeah. B- Linden Business School and C.K. Prahalad from the University of Michigan. And they wrote in 1994, a book called Competing for the Future, which if you are a student of corporate innovation, you will recall was the book that pioneered that field and brought it to the global business world. That book was one of those seminal change the world books. They had people calling them all the time. They realized they wanted to spin out and focus exclusively on uh, building a firm that would just address corporate innovation. But they needed someone who knew how to start a company, and they needed someone who was bilingual between the boardrooms and C-suites of the Global 500, Global 1000, and the Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road startups, VCs, and, and extended externally to other members of the startup ecosystem around the world. So they recruited me to become the founding CEO of a company we called Stratagos. Stratagos was uh, extremely successful. I ended up running that company for five years. We sold it. I It was really still focused on uh, innovation intervention, if you will. So it's still mm-hmm. very focused on consulting. And that was, uh, but it was very successful and I learned a lot about, we actually uh, would end our projects with what you would look at today as tech crunch disrupt. So we end it with a a bunch of uh, uh, teams who had ventures and a hundred day plans. And at that point we would kind of fade to black and disappear. Well, fast forward so i at, when once we sold the company uh I also am a mother of three daughters uh so I actually was at that point in time we had three girls in uh three years they're exactly 18 months wow. 18 months <laughs> all right. So uh, that is part of my story. I'm I'm married to my best friend of now 37 years, and we have three girls. And I think that's an important part, especially for some of the different people who are in your audience to know, yes, you can have it all. Uh, you may do it in different sequences and yes. we can talk about that. But I ended up stepping um, uh, down as CEO of, of of Stratagos. And I went to go do three things. Number one is I had been recruited to join the board of directors of Sybase. Uh, It was a New York Stock Exchange traded public company. I sat on that board for 10 years until we sold it to SAP, a great job to be doing uh, with with our girls. I went back into Silicon Valley to rekindle my roots. And I was sitting on uh, startup boards and doing investing. And then the third thing I did is I was... uh, nominated and selected to be a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, which is just, as you know, an amazing think tank um, that basically does great work around around the world. And so I'm a Henry Crown Fellow in the fifth class. And so uh, that is what I was doing until about 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, what happened is if you uh, actually look at the Silicon Valley when it was founded about 50, 55 years ago, it's actually not that that old of, uh, you know, the whole venture capital industry is not that old an industry. Uh, the VCs at that time were all former operating executives themselves for the most part, and they were investing in dreamers, people creating whole new industries. Yes. But about a decade ago, 12 years ago, they started investing in all the disruptors, people going after all the existing industries. And what was happening is I was sitting there watching all these large companies now flocking to Silicon Valley, looking for the innovation fairy dust or to see what hit them. And I am not a big believer in corporate tourism, but I'm 100% a big believer in the ability of large companies to create, build, and launch new ventures to drive meaningful growth, to disrupt themselves from the inside out and then ultimately outside in, which is another piece of what we do. And I truly believe in their ability to do that. And uh, so I basically said, this is crazy. I'm going to help the the big companies beat the startups at their own game. Uh, Now, it's not quite that kind of black and white because we actually do work a lot with uh, integrating the, the big companies and startups, but that we wanted to empower people. And so I basically said, I'm going to create the Y Combinator for the Global 1000, For those who aren't familiar with Silicon Valley, Y Combinator is probably the most famous incubator uh, that exists here, creating trillions of dollars of value, and that's what we did. And so we found uh, I founded Mach Forty Nine now ten years ago. Um, I founded it with three very very different perspectives, however, and this will be um, of interest probably to those who are consultants now, but are, are have a have a goal to do something else. Uh, we basically said, look, there's three key things. Number one, we're going to focus 100% on execution. Uh, so we are only gonna focus on venture building, disrupting inside out and venture uh, investing, disrupting outside in. And we, so that was the number one thing, we're gonna leave strategy to our friends at McKinsey yeah. and BC and Bain, and we'll be there with a catcher's mitt to actually turn that into something. The second thing is we are only, we are going to be the growth incubator for the Global 1000. We are not gonna focus on innovation. I think innovation is tainted as a term and we can talk about that, but I believe growth is not. And it's growth for people, it's growth for communities, it's growth for companies, it's growth for shareholders, it's growth for the planet. And that's really what we're focused on. The other thing is, I said we're not going to actually hire any consultants or only or people who have only been consultants. We are going to p- hire people who have been operating executives. So we're a, we're a group of top tier VCs, uh, uh, C suite executives, and successful serial entrepreneurs. So we've done what we t- what we teach. And mm-hmm. then the third thing that's important, and I'll stop here, is that our whole goal, because we basically founded this company. At a stage in our career where we didn't really need to be funding or starting companies again, uh, we did it with the intent to work ourselves out of a job. Our whole goal is to build capability, not dependency, and to democratize what we do and work ourselves out of a job. And that's why now Harvard Press is publishing my book in October called The Unicorn Within, How Companies Can Create Game-Changing Ventures at Startup Speed, because we've invested ten years in building a teachable, repeatable, scalable model that will enable anybody, including all those people that are in your audience, to basically do venture building or venture investing uh, on their own, whether they are a pure entrepreneur doing starting companies or whether they are an internal entrepreneur inside of large companies.
0: Very interesting. A lot to unpack them, to we'll go through it step by step if that's okay for you.
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: okay. so, Let's start with the three pillars that drive your company. The one you said is that you're not going to lead the strategy development. It's going to be the implementation, for lack of a better word. So let me understand this correctly for the audience as well. That means that someone like Bain & Company or another consulting firm is going to come in and advise a client like GM, for example, in terms of where GM should be going with their strategy. And once that's approved by the board and the management committee as they're implementing the strategy, you guys would get involved with the implementation of that?
1: Well, typically, actually people come to us in in different ways. Often where the strategy consultants get involved is they are already working with the C-suite, we're working with the C-suite as well. What they tend to do is, it's not like a direct follow-on, what tends to happen is what they do is they come in and they basically set the themes and kind of the, 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 they widen the aperture, kind of what's a horizon one, what's horizon two, what's horizon three. What ends up happening is that right now, every single company on the planet, right, needs to focus on growth. Um, If you look at it, I I have a, a, a slide in my keynote I'm happy to share with you. But if you Forbes did a did a study and they looked at the average life of a company on the Fortune 500 list 50 years ago was 75 years. Today, it's 15 years and declining of those companies on that list 50 years ago, 88% of them are out of business. And so our point is, and most of those guys use large consulting firms. So my whole thing is it's great to have a strategy, but if you don't execute and you don't focus on growth, then you will unfortunately be Kodak. And so it's really important. So so while what we're basically saying is, look, some other people are in there already. They're already basically having these conversations about what those horizons might look like, what the themes might be, what the from to shifts are that they might wanna do. What we then come in is then we come in and we build that growth engine. So in some cases, it's, hey, we're going to build you a CVC to do venture investing. Yes. In other cases, it's to do build a venture factory because the whole goal is to get to a portfolio, whether it's on the investing or on the venture building side. And in some cases, like with some of our clients, we're actually building them whole growth divisions where they yes. are separate from the core and legacy business for many reasons, but the main reason is to enable the metrics and the KPIs to be associated with what it's like to start a new company as opposed to the old legacy business, right? Because that tends, that's part of the challenge that big companies face. So these, so, so there's, you know, we love all of our friends at these consulting firms because they're basically helping kind of widen the aperture, set direction. And then often what we will get is we will get the C-suite who will come to us and say, first of all, this is all you guys do, right? We're not trying to be all things to all people, and that, and we have got to, we got to focus on execution. We've got to build. We've got to build capability. What we're not there to do, and again, we'll leave this to other people. Is I'm not a big believer in innovation transformation. I don't think it works. But what yeah. I do believe works is if you take enough startups or new ventures and you tether them to the mothership." and they're out there and they're generating hundred million in revenue, 200 million revenue, they're valued at a billion dollars and they have an impact on on your PE multiple and your valuation. Then all of a sudden everybody's looking up and going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait, what did you say? What's happening? What are the from two shifts that you said we have to make to help these ventures reach escape velocity and drive growth for us? Okay, now you've got people paying attention and now transformation can start to occur.
0: Okay, I like that. I want to get to the second pillar. That was the most interesting one. You said that the word innovation had been tainted, so you focus on growth. I've never heard anyone say that before because typically when people talk about growth, they use it as a synonym for innovation. So maybe unpack that for me so yeah. the audience can see the insight you have there.
1: Yes, thank you. So here's the thing. Obviously, innovation is super important, but the challenge is, this is a little bit like... Um, is a little bit like the concept of digital transformation, uh, right? Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of people who basically are getting, you know, are, are checking the box for their board. Oh, we're yeah. doing innovation. We're doing digital transformation. Well, guess what? COVID hit and a lot of people got caught with their pants down, frankly, mm-hmm. because they been doing jazz hands on digital yeah. transformation and innovation and they weren't ready, right? You've got John Chambers. He's been going around, former you know, CEO and chairman of Cisco. He's been going around the world doing his kind of farewell tour, Ranting to rooms full of CEOs that he's sorry to tell them that, guess what, within, uh, you know, 10 years, 40% of you in this room are going to be out of business because 70% of you are going to attempt to go digital, only 30% are going to succeed. And that was pre-pandemic so yeah. he was absolutely validated when the pandemic pandemic hit it's the same thing with the word innovation it's not that you don't have to innovate it's just that we've had too many chief innovation officers who are people without portfolio they were never empowered to really do anything they didn't have enough budget frankly you know we actually think that there's huge potential you know in having r&d we're 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 writing an article right now on r&d for the 21st century because so many r&d groups are getting bombarded because they, you know, a large percentage of the corporate budget is put to R&D and nothing ever gets commercialized or monetized. And it's not customer driven and there's no customer focus. And so what we're finding is that, you know, there's just a lot of people doing some self-reflection right now about what all the initiatives that they've done. So again, not devaluing innovation, what I'm devaluing, what I'm basically saying has been tainted is Everybody talks about innovation, but if you look at it, nothing is happening. And so you've got to combine innovation with execution. The reason why we focus on growth, growth is measurable. Innovation is very hard to measure as an abstract concept. Growth, you can measure. You can measure whether or not people are learning something and they're getting promoted. You can measure whether or not we're having an impact on climate change. Um, you can measure whether there's there is a um you know whether or not you are moving the needle on the the p e multiple for for your stock price. because again, remember, most of our clients, they they want to be perceived as growth stocks, not value stocks. So growth is a very um, is is actually more tactical than and more measurable or more execution oriented than innovation is often,
0: yeah, you said it very well where you said that, Innovation itself is not wrong. It's been tainted by the way it's been interpreted and been operationalized, which in most cases it has not been operationalized.
1: Right, exactly. And the
0: second thing, which is very true, and I agree with this whenever I see innovation rankings, where you look at the number of patents that have been filed. What does that mean if you file more patents? It just means you have a big (laughs) R&D department, right?
1: Exactly. You know, because
0: I have a degree in thermodynamics, I always think about it this way. It's potential. That's what a patent is. It, totally. It's I love that.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And and it's it's really important for, for people to understand that because yeah, I got news for you. Most of the unicorns in Silicon Valley are not sitting on patents.
0: <laughs> yes. I know it's scary. I've seen that. Whenever I see companies send me a prospectus to invest, I always dig through to see do they have a moat that's defendable in a court exactly of right. Yeah. And most of them don't have it. You know, I look at a lot of these fintech banks. And most of them, when you you dig through the filings, they're using a little bank in Kansas that has a banking license. And that banking license can be taken away from them at any time that FinTech can go out of business. So I love what you're saying about how innovation is very, very hard to measure. And second, a lot of people like talking about it. And as long as they talk about it, they feel they're being innovative. (laughs) And the other thing about digital transformation for me because I used to be a strategy partner. So I always look at things in this angle. But for a lot of companies, digital transformation is having an app, which usually doesn't work very well.
1: Exactly. I love that.
0: But it's true. How many companies will say they're rolling out an app, which is usually a B2C business model? It's not B2B. So they've made an implicit decision to go B2C. And the app doesn't work. A great example of this is the Nest app. I don't know if you ever used the Nest app, it takes about 45 seconds for the app to boot up. By that time, the alarm has gone off in my house. And I'm thinking to myself, has a Google executive ever installed Nest in his house?
1: Exactly, right, exactly. Have you eaten your own dog food? And that is why, by the way, you just hit on an incredibly important point, which is why when we talk about building ventures, we say there's three fundamental things. Number one is you have to understand customer pain. No one in the world knew they wanted a microwave oven, a minivan, or a DVR, yes. right? But they could tell you that they weren't getting home in time to cook a healthy meal, yeah. they never got to watch their the television shows, and they were having to cart an ever-increasing number of kids, dogs, and sporting equipment to myriad places. They could tell you their pain. And you know, we get a lot of people who basically do surveys. And I tell people CEOs all over the world. Surveys are statistically significant and strategically irrelevant because all you've done is outsource your visceral understanding and empathy for the customer to somebody else. And that just doesn't work. And so you've got to understand customer pain, which means for every one of your listeners, you actually have to interview customers. The problem for a lot of engineers and a lot of people who start companies, and those people, you know, those executives at Google never use Nest is that they basically survey people they don't actually use the product they don't actually go out and understand what the real pain is and therefore they build things that that nobody wants and for a lot of engineers who we love our engineers but they don't like to talk to people and and they won't they don't often like to talk to people and and what they really want to do is they want to basically they have they, they bring confirmation bias yeah. into the interviews they do. And they they don't ask you what your pain was or anything before it. They ask you, do you like the blue one or the red one? Yes. Well, people will tell you, I like the blue one or the red one, but what they're not going to tell you because they'll feel sorry for you is that I don't want it in the first place. Yeah. So, so, so understanding customer pain and then marrying that pain with the art of the possible, what are the current trends and technology that we can use to bring to solve that pain? Right. And, Uber doesn't exist if we don't have GPS, real-time payments, mobile phones. Yeah. And then we, and, and, and if, by the way, to solve that pain, the only answer is time travel. Well, we don't have time travel, yeah. so you have, to kill the, you, you have to kill the venture because the product's not feasible to build unless yes. you can partner invest to get there. And then the third piece is understand customer pain, marry it with the other the possible and place a series of small bets. Run pilots, do experiments, But what we, when we look at funding in Silicon Valley, we look at funding like an onion. Every layer of onion is a layer of risk. It could be financial risk, technical risk, market risk, or in the case of a large company, governance risk, you love it to death or you starve it of oxygen. And so the the job of an entrepreneur, whether you are an internal entrepreneur or an external entrepreneur, is to figure out how to remove the greatest amount of risk on the least amount of capital. And you do that by saying, what are the risks? What are the experiments and pilots I'm going to run to prove I can mitigate those risks? What are the metrics and milestones I'm going to hold myself accountable to to prove that I can do that? Only then do I get to unlock a round of funding and another round of funding and another round of funding.
0: I like that. Building on this very good argument you've made, because we spoke about how innovation is potential, you got to measure it in growth. And remember, I was working with many companies around the world. They would be growing. They'd be spitting out cash, but their share price was in the gutter, which means they were going to take over targets. I always would tell them that, okay, you've got to have innovation, you've got to have growth, but it must be shown in your share price. Otherwise, all you're becoming is a cash cow that's an acquisition target.
1: Oh, amen. You're hitting on another one of my favorite topics for your investment banking analysts. We need them to lean in and disrupt the financial markets. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So I actually am working on a piece of research right now with John Danner, who's a professor at Princeton and Berkeley, great guy, wrote wrote, uh, a lot of great books. And we're doing a piece of research called Valuing the Unicorn Within, because right now, and we're going after the Wall Street, LSE, Nikkei, all the analysts who basically- drive these large companies to only focus on quarter to quarter earnings. Because here's the problem that they're doing. They are actually help ensuring that these large companies go out of business. And that's a pretty provocative statement, but I feel really, really strongly about that. And I'm literally calling on these people to basically join us in in coming up with a new model. Part of the reason why I'm helping large companies not just create venture factories, but new growth divisions is so they can create a separate set of metrics. Because right now, what happens is, despite the fact, so if you think about startups in Silicon Valley, as much as I love our startups, they get a hall pass when they go public every single yes. time, right? They're getting 15x, 20x, 30x multiples on nothing, absolutely nothing, especially compared to their counterparts, the competitors who are basically the so-called dinosaurs. Yes, yes. So the, the financial markets already know how to value companies like that. They're already, they look at them and they and they don't look at profit. They look at cover acquisition, they look at revenue, and they look at some other metrics. We already have the metrics to value the unicorns within these large companies. And so what they we must do is we must get the financial markets to basically Yes, fine, use whatever metrics you want to use for the core and legacy business, but you've got to give these large companies the same hall pass that you give to these startups so that they can then at least get a blended valuation, right? So from their core legacy business and their new the new businesses that they're launching so that they too can get those multiples because guess what? They are far better equipped to bring these ventures to the world at a much accelerated pace than any well-funded startup, because they have ideas, they have talent, they have brand, they have channels, they have customers, right? And so it's it's really incumbent upon um, us to basically start to drive disruption in the way large companies are valued, especially those who are actually working on real innovation, real growth by creating you know a pipeline and portfolio of new ventures. To drive growth, as well as a pipeline and portfolio of ventures that they're investing in, that will that they should uh, generate a return on. This is a very, very important point. That is just that the big companies have that. This is where startups have an unfair advantage, maybe the only one over the big companies.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that actually, because while you say the market is very good at valuing companies and understanding the source of competitive advantages and who is worth what. I don't think they're very good at it, to be honest. Because, no. I mean, every time there's a scandal, I'm always surprised the financial community is the last one to point it out. And it's usually some guy who's running a fund shorting someone who's the lone voice. And I remember when Enron was around, I think they made the cover of Fortune something like four years in a row. Yeah, right. And, and it wasn't hard to see that it was non-recurring earnings, right? They were selling assets and all kinds of things. So I agree with you. You know, People always say, but the market is efficient yes and no, the market is eventually efficient. Right. But it takes time to get there. And I agree with you that what is happening now where companies are trying to learn those principles of how to create fast growth businesses using the assets they have is something fairly new. It isn't something that has been institutionalized before, like what you are trying to do. So I think the market needs to be educated a little bit.
1: Yes, In terms of...
0: How do you actually value a company? Because I know how the market would respond to this, because I do speak to financial analysts quite often. Their response is that, well, the large company is going to strangle the startup. But I'm saying that's true for some companies, because the culture strangles them. But for other companies, it's not the case. You've got to distinguish between companies. You can't just say all big companies are going to strangle a startup.
1: Completely, completely. I also think there's another reason that people really need to lean into this. So there are actually two altruistic reasons I founded Mach 49. Number one is people are living longer and longer because of healthcare and technology. Yes. They could be working 70, 80, 90 years. And as much as we love startups, most of those people are employed by large companies. We need our large companies to persevere, to be long-term employers for these people. We also, though, need to make sure that when people are living this long and working this long, that they have meaningful, purposeful work. And it's why I believe most large companies need to look more like Berkshire Hathaway and be more like more of a portfolio of companies. Oh, I like that, where Where people can basically be closer to the customer. You can have people across every demographic, Um, be entrepreneurial, be able to tap into that creativity if they want. It allows the financial markets actually to value these large entities easier because they can look at the sum of the parts as opposed to trying to basically disaggregate. So that's one of the altruistic reasons is basically because, and frankly, we've had a much broader range of demographics of internal client entrepreneurs that are basically running our clients ventures than the Silicon Valley demographics demonstrate, right? Because we can have people who are frankly in their fifties or sixties, be CEOs of these internal ventures and bring this incredible wealth of knowledge, but they would not typically be entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley because they don't, they can't take the risk. Right, So there's a lot of really amazing opportunities. The second big altruistic reason I founded the company is that I truly believe, and this is why the financial markets should care and everyone should care that our large companies have this ability, is because the big hairy problems we face as a world, from climate change to sustainability, I'm sitting the house I'm in right now is the greenest house in America because I've been an eco-warrior. My 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 husband and I have been eco-warriors for since college. So, you know, climate change, sustainability, water, education, racism, poverty, all of these, these big hairy problems facing the world need our large companies equipped with the ability to disrupt, to be agile, to, to basically lean in. Because honestly, many of our governments are dysfunctional. And NGOs, as much as we love NGOs, cannot solve problems at the global scale that a global 1000 can. And so it is actually very important for us to ensure, both from an employment standpoint and a change the world standpoint, that our large companies endure, they innovate, and they grow.
0: Yeah, I like what you're saying. You know, when we talk about large companies, the world is sometimes numb to I think the pain they go through, but also the implications of the pain they're going through. And a classic example of this, we're seeing right now with the IPO of Porsche. So Mm -hmm. why is the Porsche family selling Porsche for lack of a better word? They are keeping a large controlling stake because they don't have the valuation to fund the transfer to electric. So when you think about this, you've got a company that's putting their crown jewels on the line to pay for the transfer to an electric generation of vehicles because the valuation right now is not where Tesla is. Right. So, so this is the classic conundrum whereby it's an age-old problem. How do you value the sum of a parts of a conglomerate? Right. And the financial community never got it right over the last 30 years. They've never. always put in this discount factor, which again, what you say is true. Some companies should have the discount factor because of the way they are governed, their culture and so yep. on, which strangles Absolutely. growth. But there are other companies whereby that conglomerate structure actually works fairly well in terms of moving resources around. But the thing about this, which strikes me is that when everyone talks about the Porsche IPO, they always miss the point that they're putting their crown jewels on the line because they don't have the cash because their share price is not where it needs to be. And that's a classic example that where you're talking about that if they don't get this right, Can you imagine how many people in Germany around the world will lose their jobs?
1: Of course. Absolutely. We need large companies.
0: Exactly. (laughs) We need large companies. You know, I remember this one, um, I used to work in the resources sector. And I was talking to a, I'm not going to mention the CEO, but a FTSE 100 company, one of the biggest resources companies in the world. And we were talking about, you know, what do mining companies do? Everyone hates them. Everyone's trying to get them out of their portfolio. The Norwegians are trying to, you know, run a campaign to put them out of business. But we we're talking about this, and I, and I remember pointing out to him is that, you know, if you look at a place like Afghanistan, it's a failed state for lack of a better word. You know, JP Morgan is not going to open a branch network in Afghanistan. Right. Starbucks yeah. is not going to go into Afghanistan. McDonald's, maybe, but probably not. But the people who are going to go into Afghanistan are going to be the mining companies. They're going to be the first people to go there. They're going to create the infrastructure. They're going to build hospitals, build roads. They're going to start paying a salary. And then you got all the consumer companies coming in. So you've got to really understand the role companies play. And I exactly. agree with you. You know, We talk a lot about how startups are changing the world. But if you look at what's going to happen in Afghanistan, it's going to be a mining and an oil company that's going to change Afghanistan.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, the mining companies... We have several as clients are absolutely making the from to shift to a more sustainable world. And so, I mean, I think this is the thing. There are some who basically have no interest and we won't work with them. We have preconditions or we won't work with a company. But but there are a lot of them that are really, really pushing and they have the capital. The other thing that people don't remember about these large companies like the oil and gas companies, the mining companies and others is that. Yes, not only are they going to be the first ones in, but they're also the ones with the capital to be able to invest in some of these long horizon deep yeah. tech science driven ventures that no venture capitalists will touch. They won't touch it. But these guys will touch it because they have their they have kind of patient capital if you will yes. and they know they need to make that transition. So, you know, I think this is something that people just really that they need to basically dig deeper before they make kind of prejudgments. There's a lot of people who kind of judge things, judge the book by its cover, if you will, as opposed to really digging deep and really understanding. But ESG is here for, you know, we most of so much of so many of our clients are kind of heavy industry clients, really desperately trying to move the needle on climate change and sustainability and and like in a very sincere and authentic way. But they will invest in deep tech science-based ventures that m- most VCs cannot because their limited partners don't have a patient. Don't have the patience to get a return on investment over the period of time that it takes to basically invest in these things.
0: Now you spoke about patient capital, a word that's used a lot. What I've seen is most capital is not very patient. And let's talk about the mechanics of how this works, right? Oh. So my experience is companies, and as you've seen, are traditionally resistant to change. So you've got you've got a client. Let's, I'm gonna use marriage as an example. I'm not saying that's a client of yours, just uh, as yeah, an yeah. example. And you're going to Marriott and you've got all these business unit heads who are you know, protecting their turf and so on. How do you get a company like Marriott to first understand this philosophy that, hey, if we create these businesses that we run and we run them like startups, it can help the business and so on. How do you get them to first see that philosophy? And then how do you see the change? Because there's a lot of inertia here.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of inertia. So so, it usually, for us, right? We're a pull, not a push. so that's that's very important. So people are already kind of leaning in when they when they typically come to us, and we're a C-seat, c-suite driven initiative because you know, I think there are ways to do this bottoms up. But if you ultimately don't have the C-suite to your point, that the people in the middle who don't yes. want the change. That's where you're going to run into. So you've got to. It's got to basically be coming from the top. It's got to come from the boards. It's got to, got to come from that. And there's, you know, typically when when I I'll get asked to come in and, and actually do a keynote, um, to boards, to senior executives, to others. And and what happens is, you know, I'll go in and I'll use that one statistic I told you about companies going out of business faster than ever before. Yes. But I'll also then say, okay, fine. Let's assume you're not going out of business, right? Today, there are 1,187 unicorns with a total valuation of $3.8 trillion. So that means even if you're not going of business, you are leaving a ton of money on the table. Yeah,
0: and I'm like pretty that. sure
1: your shareholders don't want you leaving money on the table. And that's when I then put up my silly slide, which is, okay, imagine if Marriott launched. There's no reason Marriott couldn't have launched Airbnb. There's no reason that Jamie Dimon or any of his compatriots couldn't have have launched Stripe, which is valued at $90 billion, right? There's literally no reason that Blockbuster had three chances to buy Netflix, three chances, and basically laughed it off every time. Who's laughing now, right? So, so you know, it starts at the top. So that's really kind of the number one thing. It starts at the top. We will always find those internal entrepreneurs. There's always ideas, there's always people that have been frustrated. So, but we've got to start there and make sure that there are. I I have this, I have this growth journey that I walk senior executives through that says, listen, the very first thing is you got to figure out whether or not you're actually ready to grow. We're doing a growth readiness assessment right now. We're doing that with Huggy Rao who, if, I don't know if you know Huggy, he wrote Scaling Up Excellence. He's a professor at Stanford Business School, amazing. Another uh, faculty partner of Mach 49s and Rick Kolsky, who's uh, an adjunct at Kellogg at Northwestern. And we're literally doing a growth readiness assessment. And we basically are talking about not minimum viable product, but but minimal viable readiness, right?
0: Oh, I like that. That's a good face.
1: Yeah. So to grow. And so basically it's kind of like, are you... Um, you know some of, some of the criteria that we we ask people right are okay are you inspired by the voice of the customer is is the, is one of the first preconditions yes. are you current on the disruptors at the gate we will often for our clients do what we call a domain exploration ecosystem map so they can see what that value chain is so we did it for one of the large oil and gas companies in wind and we're, we basically segmented the whole wind industry. And then we said, okay, where is the money pouring in? Where are there startups? Where is it that there's white space? Where do you have core competencies, assets, capabilities where you can win and really drive disruption here? And where are there people you could buy, partner, or invest in that would allow you to accelerate that change? You know, do you have strategic assets to leverage? Do you favor agility over friction? Can you unleash your people and your capital? So the first thing is, okay, are they ready to grow? And are, we're building a, an assessment tool that people can frankly do it themselves because our whole goal again is to build a capability, and 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 people can take initiative. Yes, great. If you ha- are ready to grow, now you got to build your growth engine. All right. And so we actually also have what we call the growth engine center of excellence, where we can answer for people. We, so how do other people do it? How do they compensate their people? How many ventures a year are they investing in or building? Where, How is it structured? What's the governance model, et cetera? And there are four en- arrows that need to be in people's growth engine um, uh, in their growth quiver, if you will. One is the organic venture building in the form of a venture factory or a growth division. The other is the ability to do venture investing strategic partnering and what we call kind of targeted MA. So for instance, we have a company, we're building a venture, it's going to get to 50 million in revenue pretty quickly, but we can get it to, you know, a billion dollar valuation even more quickly by acquiring a startup that has hundred million million in revenue. So so that's the second thing is they build the growth engine. The third thing is then they got to prime the pump. They got to develop the pipeline. How are they sourcing ideas? How are they filtering ideas, et cetera? That's a very, you know, that's in very important yes. part. The next thing is they got to tell the story. So we communications in this process is extraordinarily important, both internal and external communications, because this is what gets the other people and I'll and I'll come to some other people who play a role in this that also allows you to get this going and to to basically break through the friction to overcome the inertias, the antibodies, and the orthodoxies that you're talking about and 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 you know de facto asking about in your question. But that internal communication is important because you've got to be able to share with the rest of the, the mothership how are you adding value to the organization besides the venture you're building? What else are you learning that you can basically bring? What else can you teach us in terms of how you do customer development? What you're learning from the markets? What we what you what you now know about blockchain and AI? What, what how do you give back? And then the external communications is also important. How are you talking to Wall Street about the venture yes. building or venture building you're doing? How are you talking to your shareholders so that they understand that basically if you pay them a dividend, it just means that they're you're, you know you've, you're admitting that you can't spend their money better than, than, than they can spend their money. Right. And how to be a growth. So that telling the story and we help our clients do that all the time. And then the last piece of it is, you know, reaping the rewards. And this is where you and I were just talking about valuing the unicorn within. So, so it starts at the top and, and once, but once they are leaning in and once we basically are, you know, kind of at a meta level that we're all aligned on what the overall aspiration and objectives are then that's when you can then go into the very specifics of what you're talking about which is how do we you know how do you build these ventures right and yes. how do you build venture factories and so you know typically we talk about four stages of venture building ideate incubate accelerate scale these are very important because people basically drop the ball along yeah. the way in pretty significant ways. And I'll, I'll take each one of those, um, um, slowly. And then I want to talk about kind of another really interesting, um, um, component, because I talked about that. We do venture building. We help people build venture factories. We help them on the venture investing CVCs M and a partnering. But then the last thing we do is help them bring the Silicon Valley inside. And I'll talk about that after I talk about the specific venture building. So, for IDH, typically companies come to us one of three ways, and your audience may recognize this. Either, number one, they have too many ideas, right? And so they don't really know how to filter those ideas down to, you know, what, and bucket those ideas into, yeah, okay, look, that's this true. is pure R&D, so this isn't ready to incubate and take to the market. Ah, this is is a venture, it can be incubated, but it's kind of a long horizon deep tech uh, venture. So it, it it has a different process and it will take longer and you need to be prepared for that. Then there are those ideas that are just ready to incubate. There are some ideas that frankly are past the incubate phase and are ready to take to market and people just don't know how to do that. So we start and ideate. So one way is we have too many ideas. So you need to learn how to do a portfolio review like a venture capitalist might. The other way people come to us is that they have domains they want to look at. So we had one large client come to us and they wanted to look at food, water and road safety. Well, guess what? You can't incubate food, right? Like that's way too big of a domain. So you've got to get it down. So we'll help them do some domain exploration and do that. In other cases, they frankly, want to shake out where their internal entrepreneurs are, so they want to do a venture competition. And again, we can come to that if that's a topic of interest. But venture competitions, there's very good ways and really terrible ways to run venture competitions, but that's another way to source ideas. And then the fourth way is that people come to us and they they absolutely already have an idea. And if you already have an idea, that's great. You can start there. There are only two things, and whether you are, one of your audience members, who's an internal entrepreneur, or you are a a startup founder or want to be a startup founder, there's only two things you need to actually begin incubating a venture. And that is a challenge statement and a stakeholder map. And a challenge statement is, okay, what a hypothesis on, it does three things for you. One is it establishes a hypothesis on the pain you're trying to solve Yes. so that you can be specific about that, right? And that therefore, you know, it sets, it's your aspiration, it's your moonshot, but it also sets the boundaries on what you're trying to do so that you're not trying to be all things to all people. So it sets the boundaries. Um, and it just gives you a starting point of what you're gonna go test with the other piece of what you have to do to start, which is to identify stakeholder map. That stakeholder map are, what are the potential segments of customers and the personas that you're gonna go after for this particular venture. Now, what's important about that is to is the word persona. When you go to interview, because you want to figure out who you're going to pick up the phone, and it's not just customers, because in some cases, to your point, like banking, there are regulators. There yeah. are other stakeholders that matter that you have to pay attention to and be interviewing. There are channel partners. There are, there are supply chain members. So you've got to basically identify who the stakeholders are. And the challenge statement, the how might we, um solve this pain in a way that so that and the um and i'm happy to share that tool with you yes. that you can figure out to your and then the stakeholder map those two things give you a starting point that you can launch to start to incubate day one it's very important that when you do your stakeholder map you are looking for people so a lot of times people will say oh I'm I'm my clients are going to be banks they're gonna be uh, hotels they're going to be a technology company well, guess what? Banks, hotels, and technology companies don't buy. Who buys is the CFO of that technology company. Yes. Who buys is the head of of customer experience at the hotel. Who buys is the is the you know chief marketing officer or chief strategy officer or the head of retail at the banking at the bank, or, or at, yeah, at the banks. Oh, retail banking at the bank. So you really have to basically identify the people. Those people then give you who you're going to interview. So at that point, you now have your idea. Now you need a team. There's actually four types of team members that are really important. Number one is your new venture team. Those people are in essence, your internal founders. They're the people who are really excited about that. And typically with founders, I talk about three types of people inside every company because everybody can win when you're looking at doing venture building and venture investing. Um, one are those internal entrepreneurs. They're the people who love chaos, love to talk to people. They can they they can stand the the frenzy and the pace. They don't mind the lack of structure, they don't mind the ambiguity. So they are there, they're your startup people. Those are the people who are on your founding team. Ultimately, as the venture grows, they're gonna pass off to what we call the growth geniuses. And some of you may see yourselves as the growth geniuses. You're like, oh, I want nothing to do with that startup phase. It's yes. just too unstructured. It's too chaotic, but I am really good at growing something. Once we know that we have product market fit, it's early revenue, they can grow something 15, 20, 30% a year. They can put the systems and processes in place that it takes to scale. They can be the adult supervision, you know, or, or the person who's taking it from there. Often, if you think about Silicon Valley, we, we go between Um, You know, we have our founders often right before the company goes public, you will bring someone in who's really good at kind of that stage. Then the third group are the efficiency experts. Those are the people who are basically running the core business typically. And they're really good at at driving operating efficiency, squeezing margin, getting cash that we can then now reinvest into our our early stage startups and our entrepreneurs. So those people exist in every, every organization. So when you go to start a company, what you're looking for When you go to start a uh, build a venture, what you're looking for are those, that founding team that can handle that pace. So that's your new venture team. The second group you need, you must have is your new venture board, okay? That new venture board is made up of people who can, who are the senior executives who are going to be playing the internal venture capital role. And oh, by the way, they have their own learning journey as well. So they're the people who can provide the go, no-go decision and provide the funding They're the ones who can provide you access to customers because the key differentiation you have over any well-funded startup is you have 30 million customers often. The third thing is they can actually provide access and know where the core competencies, assets, capabilities to allow you to seize the mothership advantage. And the fourth is they can eliminate friction like that, right? So So that's the second piece. The third group that you want to be paying attention to is if you're building a venture factory, then you need the Vector Factory team members. Those are the people who in our world, we say they're the, they become the Mach 49 inside. They're the ones who help facilitate that incubation accelerate process for the new venture team and the new venture board. And then the fourth group is what we call new venture advocates. This is really important. It's not just about the internal entrepreneurs. There are also many, many people who are entrepreneurial who live inside of legal, procurement, yes. risk, marketing, HR, finance. Those people deserve the right to be entrepreneurial, to be creative as well. So we create a group of new venture advocates who become, when we get to the end of a venture and we're ready to go launch pilots at the end of Incubate, and as we move to Accelerate, we are working with that one person in legal who is who is empowered to write the one-page term sheet for that pilot, not the 40-page term sheet. The person in procurement who, when we're doing a venture for a dog food and pet food company, and they're building an integrated hardware software product so they don't have a hardware prototyper on their yes. pre-approved vendor list, can get them on the vendor list in two weeks, not two years. They are the person in, in, in HR who knows what a growth hacker is, right? So so the beauty of this is that there's, there's a place for everyone in here. And the other key thing is with the new venture board, sometimes we will add a fifth group, which is an advisory board. And the advisory board, and again, all of this is the pre-party planning that goes in before you even start incubating, because it, this is what helps you break through the friction, get get people leaning in, getting more advocates who really, this is now their baby and they want it to work. They don't want to stand back and just basically be the management review board dumping all over everything. And so the other, the last group is an advisory board. That advisory board is made up typically of other senior executives who might not be the new venture board. So they don't make the fund, no fund decision but they might be people who bring different superpowers who, who have different access to things who will be very critical to the success of the venture. And or for political reasons, they are people you put on the board, yes. on the advisory board, because you want them leaning in. You want them not to say, "Well, well, you guys didn't ask me, so I'm gonna." Doesn't matter how good this is, I'm not gonna like it. So, so you, so you know, there is a there is a mothership. We, we say that there's two things you have to do when you're basically doing venture building or venture investing. That's actually the easy part. The other part is the mothership management, and that's the thing that you've really got to think about. And it's not a negative thing. It literally is how do you seize the mothership advantage? We which is what is gonna differentiate you and set you apart and help you to accelerate. So we do ideate, we do, inc- we, get, we do the prep before the incubate, then we get in and we do the incubate and incubate has three phases and the phases are basically customer development. We start with the customer, as I said before, understand that customer pain because if there's no pain, we teach you to kill it. You've got to not be afraid of killing ventures. And this is probably the biggest barrier most large companies face is fear of failure. And so we have to very early on celebrate failures as what they really are, which is learning opportunities and have people understand in Silicon Valley, they will often hire people who have failed, had a failed venture before to be their CEOs or head of product or CFOs because they have learned from that mistake or that that situation. And now they are much better founders the second time around. So it's almost the reverse. Failure is actually a, a, a badge of honor, not something that is a blemish on somebody's career. So we understand that customer pain. Um, if there's pain, we move on and we split the team. People are still doing customer development. Now we're moving on the product. You know, what can what can we what what can we solve? So we'll start to do storyboard interviews at that point. And then ultimately, if the pain is there and the product is buildable and we can see the big opportunity, then we move on to building the business plan. Now, most people want to start there. We say you can't start with a business and execution plan. You can't start with a size of market. You don't even know if you have any customer pain to solve. And so then we move by the end of incubate, you must not have a five-minute demo day pitch. In a traditional sense, you must yes. have a very robust business and execution plan. Again, I'm happy to share that kind of table of contents with your with your audience, if you guys have some place to post things, but it's got to be very robust and rigorous. At that point, you've now got, you know, so you've got ideate, you've got PrEP, you've now Incubate. Now you have gotten the go, you have been given your initial funding, you've been said you can launch, and now you move to Accelerate this is where 99% of the problems occur is that nobody thinks about accelerate nobody thinks about how do you get this venture from 0 to 1 that's not what big companies are very are good at what they're really good at is you know the is a scale phase so we there's two things i will say to your audience that are very important about accelerate number 1 you need to think about it in three phases the first phase is kind of the seed funding but we call it a build to validate phase where you were in the market, running those small bets, running those experiments, running those pilots, removing that risk and really getting to the point where you know you have product market fit and early revenue. At that point, you move to a build to automate phase where now you can start to automate the processes. This is where big companies tend to be much, much better. And then you move to build to scale. But not only do you need to think about accelerate in three phases, you need to think about accelerate um, across what we call five swim lanes everybody wants to focus on the product great but you may have a product and you have no go-to-market strategy so at the same time you're experimenting with your product you need to be experimenting with four in four other areas one is your go-to-market are you using inside sales field sales is this digital uh, are, are you using channel partners how what's your go-to-market plan the second is what's your business model how are you pricing are you generating data? Is there a data exhaust secondary revenue stream that you guys might be able to do? And you need to be experimenting with pricing and other things and, and other business model. Um, uh, is it SaaS? Is it, is, it, is it fee for service? What is, what, is it just a product you're selling? How is that going to work? And then, the, 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 so you've got product, you've got go-to-market, you've got business model, you've got operations. And operations is, okay, well, great. You've got all these three things, but how are you actually going to set the company up and deliver it? And is that gonna be, can you actually do that affordably? Because if you can't get to positive unit economics, then guess what, you're out of business. And then the fifth thing is team. We do a lot of work around compensation with our clients because often they have to recruit people from out of um, the startup ecosystem because they might not have the superpowers inside that those people might bring, especially in this zero to one, zero to 10 phase. And so we need people to really think about how they're compensating. people, but the team and being able to recruit the team and the team dynamics, the two things that kill a startup fastest in Silicon Valley are no market, no pain that you're going after and you don't understand and toxic teams. And so we're really focused on team as that fifth fifth venture. So at that point, that's really the venture building activity um, kind of from start to finish.
0: Well, I like that. Very interesting. If you do have anything we can share with the audience, I think they would appreciate it. You know, when you were talking about all of this, and I appreciate you for sharing it so candidly, I realized there is a very big difference in the philosophy of the way you're running the business, and I say you, your team, and so on, is that I've sat in many discussions whereby consultants and so on advise Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies on how to be innovative, how to grow, and so on. But they have, a most people operate in a different philosophy whereby they make the case that The Fortune 500 company needs to get out of the way and release this idea into the market and stay away from it. But what you're saying is very different. You're saying that there are certain capabilities that the Fortune 500 company has that it needs to bring to bear on this idea. And because of those capabilities, it's going to make the venture more successful than if it went out by itself and tried to fight its way in the market.
1: Yeah. And to me, so that, that
0: intuitively makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. It's a, it, it, so, so interestingly, I, and what we say to everybody is, and you can test that, right? Yes. And so what happens is, so for instance, let me give you a great example. Large uh, big four consulting company is a client of ours. And they had a very interesting venture that was very data driven. So we tested it as a standalone venture and as a powered by this, client venture. Yes. So we tested it both ways in the market. It ranked way higher, powered by this big four company, than it yes. was standalone. Why? Because people did not want to give their data to some fly-by-night startup. That is That is putting it in a database and then might go out of business in two years. And what is happening with the data that they basically stored, even if it was anonymized and, disag- and, and, and disaggregated, right? Or aggregated. So, you know, you've got that. We just tested one with another client that's a healthcare system client. We tested a a new idea for a clinic powered by the brand, not powered by the brand. Yes, 100% powered by the brand was much more compelling because people trusted that. They trusted that their healthcare would be taken care of, that that the data would be protected, et cetera, right? Um, so, so again, a you can test it, and there are we do have clients who have basically launched ventures that are not that don't have the name associated, and in some cases, our clients don't. They want the startup to, to be tested without the brand, so that they can protect the brand in case people hate it, uh, which yes. is legit. But the other point is hundred percent. One of the the one of the um, when you when I send you the table of contents that is in every single business and execution plan, one of them is the gives and the gets and that slide is basically what is the mothership going to get from this venture why should yeah. they care about launching this venture what is it going to do for them and then the second thing is what is what does the mothership need to give to this venture for it to reach escape velocity faster and often like think about it you know i i i had dinner with the brand new CEO of a very large um, European automotive company, and he was in Silicon Valley and he was saying, hey, Linda, you know, everybody, you're a native, you can help me navigate this place. I, you know, we want to really prove to Silicon Valley we're here, we're engaged, we want to start a fund. How much money do we have to put in a fund? Is it 50 million euros? Is it 100 million euros? Is it 150 million euros? I said, it's this much. And I basically held up a big zero across the dinner table and he said what no money my guys are telling me i got to put a ton of money in i said think about it silicon valley does not need your money i said how many customers do you have he said 30 million i said good let's start there right so whether you are venture investing or you are venture building you have these core competencies these assets these capabilities these customers that you can bring to bear to accelerate a venture that that you know if you can Remove the, you know, the orthodoxies, the antibodies, the inertia, yes. and not try to do it in a big transformation project, but just do it one venture at a time. Then you will be, you can be wildly successful, and you will always find those advocates inside. And that's, you know, no most startups would absolutely you know, drool over the amount, the number of customers that that these. Remember, these big companies were startups at one time, and so, so this is, it's just very, very important. What, often what we do with our clients when we start with them during the prep phase is we'll do what we call an asset jam. And um, that asset jam is really saying, okay, what are those core competencies, assets capabilities you can bring to bear for the benefit of all ventures if you're doing a venture factory or a particular venture, depending on what, what that's doing. And then that's where we'll start. And, and that's that, that's another place where we'll start so that they understand that, look, these are, these are there. And then we'll build that into the business and execution plan as we go forward.
0: Yeah, because what I'm hearing here consistently is that we tend to generalize and we say that all big companies are not good at being innovative. But, you know, I'm a car guy and I know that to be false, because if you look at a Lamborghini, which is a great car, it really only exists because it is within the fold of Volkswagen. It's yeah. almost never going to be able to survive by itself and produce these world-beating machines unless it was part of Volkswagen. You know, you were, you were coming back to the test you were doing whether uh, uh, customers want the big company name behind it. Yeah. But it also applies to, to, to consumers. When I was looking yep. to buy a car, I think, should I buy an Aston Martin? But they make out of business. These guys have no money in the bank, right? They're not right. owned by anyone big. If I buy Aston Martin, what if they only have one dealership 100 miles away, and I've got to drive all that way? But I thought maybe I'd buy another nice car that's owned by a big conglomerate. So I know no matter what happens, there's someone with big pockets who's going to step in. So intuitively, we're already thinking this way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And, and it's, it's interesting that executives don't understand that having a big brand behind you helps customers and consumers have comfort
1: absolutely absolutely and i think this is why but this is why doing this as a portfolio of companies makes so much sense as well because in yes. essence you're not you're not trying to make this you you basically can bring this to bear but you can bring it to bear in different ways across these different portfolio companies and they can just be more agile and so I think that's the, the, the message. And then you can scale it over time and then you can choose to spin it out. I mean, that's the other thing is that, that the other thing that's really interesting about what's happening right now is that, you know, there are most of our clients because they're multi-billion dollar multinational companies want to retain their ventures inside yes. because they want to get the benefit of being perceived as growth stocks, not value stocks. But there are there are and typically there's there's typically three options for people. Number one is they spin a venture into an existing business unit. That's not our favorite option. And the reason why it's not our favorite option, if you're going to retain the venture, is because, you know, this poor person who basically is running the the division that you're now spinning it back into created their budgets back in January, right? Or December or November. And now you're handing them this startup that basically has no revenue and is pure cost at this point in time and saying, Hey, take care of my baby. Well, look, there's the, they're there, then fine. You better change their metrics, right? Because their metrics, they're not paid that way. And so it's really, really important um, for people to understand that if you're going to spin it back in, you at least need to keep that venture outside of the business unit until it is generating revenue because at that point it's a shiny object that now everybody's happy to have. But the second model that people use is they'll use they'll build they'll create a wholly owned subsidiary. and that is a great model for retaining it inside, but leaving it enough enough apart from the mothership that it doesn't necessarily suffer. Um, now again, where we have clients that are building whole growth divisions, those ventures never they they stay within that division until they graduate as their own lines of business. So they're never spun wholly in. they're They're either created wholly owned subsidiaries or they become their own line of business. Then the third model is indeed the model where you spin them out. And yeah. typically, if somebody wants to spin them out, they do it for two reasons. Number one is that they it, it's a typically a big heavy capital infrastructure play, and they may want to take additional capital in to pull it off. That might be capital coming from another CVC, another corporate, a private equity firm, a VC or and the and or they have um they need some superpowers that they don't have to pull it off yes and we're seeing the and and the other reason we're now seeing it's just emerging and especially where sustainability and climate change and some of the ESG initiatives are coming in is that a lot of the problems that need to be solved need a coordinated consortium collaborative effort so we're doing more and more joint venture incubations between two three or more companies Or theme-based, consortia-based venture building. So, I'll give you an example. There are a lot of big companies who are basically, of course, focused on their um, climate, their their um, their greenhouse gas emissions, and they're looking at scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, right? Well, you have control and can basically measure your scope one, scope two, but your scope three emissions are ones that come from your supply chain or other vendors or other people, or frankly, how the consumers are using your product, et cetera. It is very, very difficult, Um, but everybody's scope three is somebody else's scope one or scope two. But if every single one of these big companies creates their own model for measuring or reporting the scope three emissions... You are going to whipsaw all of these. Frankly, some of which are very small, medium-sized businesses, and they are not going to be able to keep up with. They're going to spend their. They're going to go out of business trying to basically do their scope three reporting, and so it's really important to standardize. So, like in the financial services industry, where we have SWIFT right as the backbone, that is a protocol and a, and a platform that everybody basically you know uh, agrees with and aligns with this is the same challenge that, that there are some things that we're bringing large companies together to basically form a consortia to solve some of these big hairy problems in a standardized way uh, because otherwise we won't we won't move the needle because we're going to be we're going to be too focused on our own individual our each company will be too focused on their own individual solution and it won't move the needle on the bigger problem
0: you know it's interesting when we have this discussion we're talking about growth innovation and so on but if you really come down to it, it's about how does a company deploy capital?
1: Yes. Because <laughs> what it comes
0: down to, because I was having a discussion yeah, yeah. with Tim Collar, head of McKinsey Corporate Finance a few days ago. And we we were thinking that today everyone is so obsessed with valuations and so on, but really it's about governance and how patient you're gonna be with your capital and how do you manage that capital. Because a lot of CEOs, they talk about they want to grow, they want to grow, they want to do all these things, but they're not willing to, to say, I have capital. Am I willing to be the guardian of this capital and tell my shareholders, I can't give you a dividend this year because I have something better to do with it?
1: Yeah, well, actually, there's an even, and and let I'll build on that. Yes, yeah. and that. Because I totally agree with you. The other challenge right now is the way that the accounting rules are. They are also broken. So we've got the analysts on Wall Street, that part's broken, but we also have accounting rules that are broken. And here's the, here's the biggest, here's where that's broken and it has an impact on that deployment of capital, right? So there are a lot of these, a lot of these companies that are sitting on a whole bunch of cash. They could deploy those that cash in the form of an investment, no problem, right? Yes. So they can do it. But right now, what happens is if they basically put money into building a new venture, they have to count it as an expense and they have to consolidate their books, right? Which makes no sense because a VC gets off, like, you know, they they get off, they get a free pass because they can lose billions billions of dollars. All they have to do is return Two of their ventures in their fund just has to basically return the fund, make their uh, their limited partners happy, and they raise the next fund. But I but a but a large corporation cannot do that because they don't get to count it. So one of the things that we're basically working with and 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 really trying to drive change around is how can we help large companies do build a portfolio of these ventures in a capital efficient way that doesn't hurt them, where they get to make investments just like venture capitalists get to make investments, right? That's really, really, really important. So if they get to make investments like VCs get to make investments and they get to do it off the balance sheet, right? Then what they could do is they could say, okay, this is this entity. It's out here. We can put a convertible debt we can put a convertible note in, which means we don't know what the valuation is. So we don't know if we own 20%, 30%, 40%. We can put other people on the board. So now we don't have governing control either. They can be friendlies. But the whole point is to allow them to test a bunch of different ventures, get to a portfolio at the point at which they're generating revenue. And it makes sense, bring them back into the fold, either in the form of a wholly owned subsidiary or spun back into a business division and now consolidate the expenses because now you've got revenue to offset that, right? But but the way it's designed right now, they're, they're at such a disadvantage because how Wall Street basically um, values them yes. and because the way that the, the accounting rules are that basically are, have not been modernized in a billion years, it's hard for them to be, you know, they have the capital to invest. It's just hard for them because of the way that it happens. It just makes them look like they're spending all this money. Um, uh, and they're not generating, and it's it's taking away from the profit. But really, what they're doing is investing in the long term, so that they, right? They don't they don't become yes. Kodak, or become GE, they don't become People's Express, they don't become like go back in history to all the the ventures that the companies that frankly have gone out of business.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if large companies, the default view is they need to be parented and punished. That's how regulation is set up. It's it's the default is if I don't watch these guys. They are going to cause a lot of trouble somewhere in the world. So let's control them as much as we can. And the default view is they are guilty until proven otherwise. So they have to have lobbyists to make the case and so on. And you see, it's so a let's, global let's, thing, right?
1: Yeah, but let's let us give the, the, the startups who have no experience. Yes. Past. That makes no sense, right? Like, it's just, it, it doesn't make sense. And oh, by the way, this recent downturn has basically... You know, give them and, yes. and every downturn makes people think and pause and then and then we go back and do it all over again, right? So
0: yes, well, is greed's uh, greed's an amazing thing. People never forget, but they forget. People always yes. say, I will never forget losing. I have a colleague who lost, I think he lost something like 40 percent of his portfolio. I mean that's more than the market fell because you are so heavily into crypto. And he was telling me, "Oh, Michael, I'm never going to make this mistake again." But I'm thinking, "Yeah, you told me this in 2001 yeah, as well. You're yeah, yeah. never going to make this. I'm never going all telecom and tech."
1: But the flip side is Warren Buffett is right. Right? Be you know be cautious when people are greedy and and yeah. be be bold when people are fearful. And if you actually look at the statistics, and we've done this a lot on the on the with our CVC clients, the corporate venture capital clients who are doing venture investing, like, you know, now is the time to invest, right? Because if you actually look at, you know, there's a lot of people who top tick the market and then they get in there, but then there's a lot of people who basically at this point, I think Arc is one that just doubled down on a whole bunch of their investments in this moment when people, when things are so devalued, because look, things are cyclical, it'll come back. Where you get in trouble is where, where you get in trouble is where you you know, you've highly leveraged, right? You yes. basically have created a situation where you have to sell to do it. But if you can weather the storm, you're going to weather the storm. And if even better, you can not only weather the storm, but invest, you know, in the downturn, you know, there's 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 lots that, that and this is now a perfect time, perfect time for large companies to be doing venture building yes. um, and venture investing, partnering and acquiring because the valuations are so much lower and because the, there's a lot of, 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 of opportunity out there to help accelerate and augment the growth initiatives that, they, that they're driving.
0: And for those people listening to this, if you are going to invest now, make sure you can weather the storm. And when Warren Buffett says, be bold, be smart, bold, you know, don't follow the trends.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly.
0: Linda, thank you so much. I enjoyed that conversation immensely.
1: That was super fun. I really appreciate it. It's really, uh, you're an amazing, it's great because this is exactly just, I love the free flow of the conversation. And that's what I appreciated about about not being sent 15 questions that I needed to prepare for, but just let it flow. Because I mean, you and I are, are mind melding in a very significant way.
0: And at some point down the line, we'd love to have you back on the show because I think there's a lot of things we can talk about. But what I do like and the direction I like in this call is that there has to be a fundamental realignment in the way we are measuring and treating companies if we want them to be the stewards we want them to be. Thank you so much, Linda. Oh, great.
1: Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. Take care.
0: Bye. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing